After three months of devastation, displacement, and the killing of Palestinians, we're taking a deep dive into the way the story of Gaza has been covered. A journalist, an expert on human rights, and another on digital rights, on what has taken place, the humanitarian catastrophe, and the way the media, through their news coverage, have helped pave the way to a genocide. Since the attacks on October 7th, The Listening Post has interviewed a range of experts on the news coverage, what's missing in it, and how it has helped enable the crimes being waged on Palestinians in Gaza. In this special edition, we have compiled three interviews, starting with the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Francesca Albanese. Albanese is an Italian trained in international law. She's been highlighting the duty of journalists to remember and include the context of this story, as well as what international law says about the rights and responsibilities of the occupier and the occupied. Long before October 7th, she was the target of smear campaigns, calls for her dismissal from the UN. Not one to be silenced, she has gone in the other direction, chastising journalists around the world for their biases and the UN for its inaction. I started out by asking Albanese to tell us about some of the interactions she has had with reporters on this story and what those exchanges have revealed. Uh, hi, Richard. Uh, it's uneven because I have to say that there, are, there have been a few journalists who have really tried to do um, good job, good coverage, asking me sort of neutral questions to appreciate the facts. But mostly I've had um, a difficult experience with uh, mainstream media in the West because I found, I found myself in the uncomfortable position of being challenged yeah, on how I would call things or how I would report on things. No, it's not a trope. It's really real. So it seems not to understand what I'm saying. There is an apartheid regime. No, I'm serious. There is an apartheid regime. It's domination. This is not a trope. This is international law. I mean, it was not my intention to, to challenge journalists, but it seems that they really wanted to, 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 to challenge my way of looking at things, which I found disturbing. Because again, excuse me, but I'm, I'm here to report on, on things that I've analyzed, verified, triangulated, and yeah, <laughs> I found it a bit surprising. That relates to something that you've said about today's political landscape. You say it's marked by historical amnesia, traditional media plays a critical role in that, and that many people are living in an alternative reality. What do you mean exactly by that? Yes, yes, Richard, because this is not just a conflict and calling, calling it just a conflict is a, is a misnomer because this is an occupation that has been ongoing for 56 years. So very limited uh, consideration for that, but also very limited consideration for the enduring trauma that also the Palestinians have in themselves because um, while there is recognition for the, the, the tragedy that the Jewish people have lived through and through across centuries that culminated in the horror of the Holocaust, there is very little recognition of what the Palestinians has en had endured as a people since 1947. 
since the and, and through the creation of the state of Israel. They were never allowed to come to a closure. And again, this is not about Hamas. This is really the Palestinian as a people, as they try to resist a violent occupation in the occupied Palestinian territory. There is no Hamas military presence in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, and still over 200 people have been killed by soldiers and armed settlers. Do you see any connection to it in, uh, in mainstream media? Palestinians have heard the calls, as we have, from Israeli officials and voices in the Israeli media for what amounts to ethnic cleansing of Gaza. As a lawyer, are you surprised by the evidence that they are willingly providing of what appears to be the intent to commit what are, in fact, war crimes? There seems to be this sense of impunity over their words. It's surprising, yes, because the Israelis have never been so explicit in admitting responsibility for specific incidents. One of the things that were absolutely shocking was the, the bombing of the Jabalia refugee camp. Because the Israeli army knew that there were about 400 civilians, Palestinian civilians, including hostages. And nonetheless, the camp was bombed heavily and hundreds of Palestinians were killed, hundreds were injured, and the number of hostages was reportedly killed in that case. So, yeah, they've been quite outspoken about their intention, including calling for the erasure of Gaza, the flattening of Gaza. I think we have seen before what happens to people when this, this fury becomes, uh, becomes popular. And this genocidal call that we have heard from politicians and, and military leaders in Israel is also amplified in various groups in the Israeli society. <laughs> So in the face of this madness, as someone who has seen genocidal horror happening in other parts of the world, I say it's clear that this, has, this has, is taking the Israeli society to a very dark place. And this is why I say in the interest of the Palestine, both Palestinians and the Israelis, this must be stopped. You've faced a lot of criticism. Um, for some of the things that you've said, and you faced some of that criticism prior to October 7th. Some cases you've been defamed. Pressure groups have been on your case to resign. What kind of things are they saying about you? Are they succeeding, Ms. Albanese, in making your job more difficult? Look, these groups, and they, I mean, they're all connected one way or another because they say exactly the same things that are repeated exactly in the same way, sometimes, sometimes in the same sequence, over and over. And the accusations against me are that I'm an anti-Semite, that I am pro-Hamas, and I support terrorism. Francesca Albanese is someone who pretends to be neutral. Uh, neither her position nor her own background have anything to do with impartiality. Is it succeeding? I don't think so. Because eventually more and more people keep on asking me to, to speak and to speak out. Wherever I go, uh, speaking to governments or speaking to the media off record, people know. People tell me or let me understand that the situation is better known than it would seem in the public debate. But there is a lot of censorship 
and self-censorship because people don't want to be confronted with the allegations I, I have to face on a daily basis, which in my case don't distract me. I keep focused on what I have to do. But I think that it's necessary to tackle this issue at the global level because it's, uh, it's now also the weaponization of anti-Semitism and the level of smear against anyone who utters a word of criticism against Israel and everyone who utters a word of solidarity with the Palestinians face such a huge and evil um, campaign. I mean, I also spoke with, you know, human rights defenders in the Pacific Islands where they say, well, you, we face even arrest and detention if we come out and protest in solidarity with the Palestinian people against what's happening in the Gaza Strip. So there is a crushing of freedom of assembly, a crushing of freedom of expression and of the right to protest that it's absolutely unprecedented at this global level and of this scale. Francesca Albanese, UN Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Palestinian Territories, you're up against it. Uh, we understand you're very busy. We're very grateful for the time that you've made for us today. Thank you, Richard. The blockade of the Gaza Strip is both physical and digital. Israel has forced periodic communications blackouts on Gaza. It has the power to do that. And social media, a key information source, is now brimming with disinformation and hate speech. Big tech has been taking down content, and its sensitivities on this story seem to reflect Israel's. Palestinian voices have often been muted. That is where we began with Marwa Fatafta of the digital rights group Access Now on the information siege that Israelis have imposed on Gaza. Uh, Palestinians in Gaza are under a complete siege and there is of course a near complete information blackout. Um, during Israel's uh, bombardment campaign of the Gaza Strip, um, two of the three main telecommunications lines or companies in the Gaza Strip have been bombarded. Um, people are relying currently on only one line of communications with internet and telecommunications disruptions. Um, and that means that people in Gaza are not able to access information, not able to check on their loved ones, they're not able to seek life-saving information, and they're cut off from the world. Um, they have fewer and fewer opportunities to share and tell their stories uh, and to document human rights abuses and, and war crimes. Internet shutdowns provide a convenient cover for perpetrators of atrocities, of human rights abuses, uh, to commit those in, in the dark, uh, to cover the trails of their crimes uh, and to um, impede or hinder any future possibility of accountability and, and justice. In the first half of this program, we examined some of the genocidal rhetoric that's been coming from Israeli officials and other Israeli figures. How much of that language are you seeing being mirrored online, the calls for violence, the unverified claims? There is a barrage of um, hate speech, incitement to violence, content that is uh, dehumanizing of Palestinians, Islamophobic content, um, anti-Semitic content, and that is all circulating, unfortunately, uh, with little moderation uh, from social media companies. There are, of course, many utterances from Israeli officials on social media um, that shows their 
clear intent on committing genocide, including, for instance, most recently uh, by Prime Minister Netanyahu on X, formerly known as Twitter, that this fight and this war is a war between children of lightness and children of darkness, between humanity and the law of, uh, of, of jungle. And it raises a question about to what extent social media companies are complicit in entertaining and housing and amplifying uh, these genocidal um, rhetorics that are clearly in violation of international humanitarian law and in international law in general? On that point, since Hamas's attack on October 7th, we've seen the Israeli government flood social media with ads, with graphic and provocative imagery. What are you seeing there on that side of things? And how willingly have these online platforms played host to Israeli government messaging? Since Hamas's attack on, on Israel on October 7th, um, the Israeli government has launched a social media campaign, I would say an aggressive social media campaign, to um, shape the narrative and the conversation online. Um, we've seen, uh, for example, the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs had run up to 86 ads on YouTube, uh, some of which shows indeed graphic content um, equating Hamas to ISIS and also showing the, the impact of, uh, of the attacks. And it's clear that, you know, paid targeted advertisement uh, has become a weapon of war. Governments that have the resources and the capacity to produce uh, such material can use these platforms in order to spread war propaganda and in this context to justify the collective punishment of Palestinians and um, war crimes and war, you know, crimes against humanity that we see unfolding before, before our eyes. Palestinians are also saying that social media companies have been taking down their content threatening to close their accounts. Some say they're being shadow banned outright. Tell us what examples you're seeing and are these acts of censorship on these various platforms affecting voices on both sides? We've seen users' accounts being shut down, including very notable users and journalists whose voices are very important. There's also been arbitrary decisions uh, made when, when it comes to removing content. One major concern that is repeatedly being reported is the so-called shadow banning. And whereas companies don't really use that term, um, I've witnessed it myself, uh, and I've seen many re users reporting it that you know their their content is being uh, demoted, uh, downranked, the engagement with this content is, is significantly reduced in comparison to other content not related to Palestine. Unfortunately, we thought that in 2021 we've settled matters, as in it was clear um, that this systematic and discriminatory approach to moderating Palestinian content has been exposed. Um, there is no way for platforms to gaslight users or civil society organizations that this is uh, just the result of a technical glitch, which surprisingly we don't see in other crises, like when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, we have seen actually proactive uh, statements from different companies uh, uh, stating their unwavering commitment to upholding Ukrainians' right to freedom of expression. Such commitment to human rights have not been extended to Palestinians, despite of what companies claim. The users' experience and the reality of what we've uh, documenting uh, states otherwise. Marwa Fatafta of Access Now, thank you for speaking with us today here at The Listening Post. Thank you.
Israel has said that its goal in Gaza is to destroy Hamas, but its attacks on Palestinians have also escalated on the West Bank, where Hamas has no authority or military presence. That violence is usually provoked by Israeli settlers. Prior to October 7th, almost 200 Palestinians had been killed on the West Bank in the previous 10 months. That number has more than doubled since. Mariam Barghouti is a Palestinian journalist based in Ramallah on the West Bank. She's been interviewed by multiple media outlets, and some of those exchanges, like this one with the UK channel Sky News, have been heated. Dozens of Palestinians are killed. We call it a slaughter. Thousands. We have called it Not a massacre dozens. this time. because it, Yeah. No, no, I'm talking about individuals. But could you just answer? I'm just interested. For the Mariam, last Ma yeah. If you would like sure. to talk to me as I'm a journalist, about and at least come with me with the right information, please. I began by asking Mariam Barghouti about what she's seen in the Western media's coverage of this story. The, the way international journalists attempt to trope Palestinians and delegitimize, as well as deny the crimes against them, has, has not only become vicious in, in the way that journalists are framing it, like that interview, but it has increased and become lethal in a way that it is a complete pro-genocidal stance by journalists that claim to be um, objective, that claim to be nonpartisan, that claim to be supporting um, the truth to support accurate, accuracy for their audiences. But it's not just common. It is being encouraged by editors and policymakers, whether directly or indirectly. So you don't see that as someone not fully understanding the context and bringing the context to the interview. You see that more as an intention. Absolutely. As journalists, it is our job to do our due diligence prior to bringing in anyone who is giving a testimony. Um, so to claim ignorance requires you to quit your job and go and learn. Since October 7th, uh, journalists from around the world have flown into the into the region. A lot of them are still based in Israel. Some of them have embedded with the Israeli military to get into Gaza. How difficult is it for journalists to get into the West Bank? And for those who haven't been to the West Bank to cover the story, what are they missing? It's relatively difficult for journalists to enter the West Bank only in comparison to previous times. But Israel is placing restrictions and is assigning things like minders to different bureau chiefs and international reporters in the region. And that is someone that responds and operates under the command of the Israeli military to attempt and coerce, manipulate, um, as well as pressure journalists to cover in a certain angle or to deny information from audiences. But Nonetheless, journalists still have the capacity to challenge this and come into the West Bank. The persons that they are bringing on to speak on the situation are the very people that are committing the crimes against Palestinians, that is Israeli military spokespersons, um, that is Israeli policymakers and settlers. And at the same time, negating the Palestinian testimony. And if they do speak with Palestinians, it is always an attempt to frame a two-sidedism. But there is no two sides to this, not just because it's a false equivalence between colonizer and colonized, but because journalists are only showing one side, and that is the Israeli side. And unfortunately, what we have seen more than that is a negation and a denial of the information and news that local journalists have, as though that is inferior 
rather than recognizing that local journalists are the experts on this situation, even though their lives are at increased risk um, from Israeli repression, as we have seen in their targeting in Gaza. Many Western and international media outlets simply brand this as a war between Israel and Hamas. How accurate is that framing, given everything that we've been hearing from Israeli officials on the record targeting civilians in Gaza? How accurate is the framing? How dangerous is it? It is so dangerous to take what is happening to Palestinians and reduce it to the title of an Hamas-Israel war. This is not a war between Hamas and Israel. This is a war against Palestinians in all um, geographical locations within Palestine as well as outside of Palestine, reminding that 50% of the population is in forced exile um, or are refugees abroad. So to frame it as that is a reductionist approach, and it is an attempt to continue the illustration of Palestinians as terrorists because of the, the association that was made of what Hamas is. We see the Israeli military, they closed down a printing shop downtown Ramallah just this morning, and the flyer on the door that they plastered was Hamas equals ISIS. So it goes to show you how manipulative that narrative is. And then there is no mention of Gaza being besieged for close to two decades. There is no mention of the same thing happening in Gaza right now has happened before at a smaller scale, because what we have seen is transcending all trends of violence that we Palestinians have witnessed or we have witnessed in the region since 1948. So to claim that it is a Hamas and Israel war is either an inability to actually do the due diligence and look into the context and explain that to your audience, or it is intentional. And that means you are being complicit in genocide. One last question for you. We've seen some amazing journalism coming out of Gaza, Palestinians, too many of whom have paid with their lives, uh, making a name for themselves, getting the recognition that they deserve. Can you give us a few names of some good follows of Palestinian journalists on the West Bank, people whose work is worthy of our following? It's so difficult to speak about journalists here. Tell me um, about it. Considering just the targeting. Yeah. It's heartache. And, and as a reporter, you know, we, I think we forget that these are our peers. And it also, you know, we're not advocating just for the protection of journalists, but as reporters and journalists, we're advocating for ourselves um, to, to remain safe. But in terms of coverage, I think there are multiple reporters and news organizations that are actually going against the grain and going against the restrictions that are being imposed by editorial policies abroad, at least. Al Jazeera has been doing incredible coverage um, of what's been happening all across Palestine, not just Gaza and the West Bank, but in its entire context. We, there are organizations such as Mondawais, which has also been reporting excellent um, in print uh, on the West Bank. We have Middle East Eye that has also been showcasing excellent reporting on the West Bank, as well as highlighting and covering the disinformation and mistranslation that has been happening within international media organizations. But, I mean, in, in terms of individuals, you can see the works of people like Fatan Alwan, 
you can see the works of Muhammad al-Kurd, although he is not here, but he is able to amplify a lot of the coverage that is being sent from local journalists abroad. But yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have maybe two specific names. That's fine. That's fine. Mariam Barghouti, thank you for joining us today here at The Listening Post. Thank you for having me. You've been watching a special edition of our program, a compilation of our most informative and at times heartfelt interviews on Israel's genocidal assault on the Gaza Strip. We'll stay on this story to see where it goes from here and how it's reported. And we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.